Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Nate teaches about being Jesus' famous men. Enjoy. A great way to really start uh, this night and this teaching and this whole series is by asking some questions that can help frame why we're going to take the time each month to study like this in this way. The first question we should ask is, why study? Why do this? Why gather together on these first Sunday nights of the month for this kind of time in God's Word? Why take time out of our busy lives and schedules? I'm sure all of you have things that you normally do on a Sunday night. Why would we take a moment to meditate on God's word in this way? And if I ask it like that, I think you probably know the answer that I'm going to give. If it's God's word, if God has revealed something to us, then we should take time to study his word. We believe that the Bible does not merely contain the word of God. In other words, you know, it's all pretty good and some of it is God's word. We believe that all of it is God's word. And that since it's God's word, it is worthy of study. So why study? Well, it's the Bible. It's God's word. But my hope is that we do not merely come to Scripture as curious seekers of a bit of revelation. My prayer is that as men, we would come to the word as devoted followers, men who want to submit to the Lord of their lives, Jesus Christ, as they find him in the word of the Lord. The word of God is not like a tray of hors d'oeuvres at a holiday party, you know, bits and bites that are there for the taking if we so choose. No, the word is supreme because it comes from God. So we want to study it because it's the word of God. But a second question that we might ask is, okay, well, cool, let's study the Bible, but why amends study? Why should men take the time to remove themselves from women to think about and apply the scriptures to manhood? What purpose is served in receiving the word in a format like this? And I think my answer probably reveals a little bit of what I think the Bible teaches about men. Men, like women, are created in God's image. And like women, we've been designed by God for a specific purpose and reason, but it is different from the calling that God has upon females. And by taking time to consider those reasons, those purposes, apart from the women of the church, we can straightforwardly dive into God's call and intention for our lives. But I think there's another reason, and perhaps somewhat related reason, why a men's study is helpful. Not only are men designed by God for a specific purpose, but our design lends us as men to many similar and overlapping temptations. You know, technically, women are going to struggle with the same things that 
every Christian, even men, will face. There are unseen forces that deceive us. There are bodies of sin that stir cravings within us and a world system that encourages us to live out our sinful desires. But those struggles will often take a different shape for women than they will for men. And by occasionally separating ourselves from the women of the church, we can talk frankly about both the unique callings of God and the unique temptations of the flesh that are common to men. And women are then able to do the same in their group together. Okay, so that's why we should have a men's study, but why should we have a monthly men's study? Why not a daily study or why not a weekly study? Now, those are great ways to study God's word. I hope you're reading the Bible. I think you should be reading the Bible every day of your life. Just a little bit of scripture that you're feeding on. And I think a weekly study is great. It just kind of fits the rhythms of our lives to gather together with other men in a weekly uh, rhythm. But a monthly study has a lot of benefit for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think a monthly study is really manageable. This is one of the things that we were really praying through for this year in our church family. You know, we aren't meeting in these growth nights in January or in December, so we're talking about 10 meetings throughout the course of an entire year. I think that's a commitment that a man can make and that a man can keep. And as we'll learn in this study on Jesus' famous men, I believe that men should make and keep commitments. So for a man to be devoted to Christ in his church, a weekly engagement with the Sunday church gathering, so what we did this morning, uh, 24 nights of small group gatherings in a life group or a discipleship group, and 10 nights of an exclusively men's geared study ought to be fairly manageable. And... uh, because we can catch up on missed teachings through technology, I think a monthly study becomes very conducive to life. But I think there's another benefit to a monthly uh, men's Bible study, and it's this. When you meet weekly and cover topics like we're going to cover, it's easy to kind of get caught up in the flurry of it all. Like one week, you're talking about marriage, And then you go home and you're like, man, I got some stuff to apply. And then the next week, you're talking about being a father and you go home and you're like, man, I got some stuff to apply. And then the next week, finances, man, I got some stuff to apply. And pretty soon, you've forgotten all the stuff about marriage that you heard just a few weeks earlier. So I think there's something beneficial about gathering each month and then setting our thoughts upon that particular subject for that month in time. Okay, but I have another question to ask. Not just why a monthly men's study, but why a monthly men's study called Jesus Famous Men? Why not call this study Biblical Men, or Men of the Word, or How to Follow God as a Man? And really, none of those titles would be inappropriate titles. They're all fine. I mean, the first book that I ever wrote was called The No-Nonsense Biblical Man. You can still get it on Amazon. Uh, It's not really my favorite title in retrospect. You know, kind of looking back on it, like it, it got to the idea that I was trying to communicate. I wanted to 
cut out all the silly caricatures of what men are like and all the silly stereotypes and just take a solid look at what the Bible says about Christian manhood. But I'm calling this a Jesus famous man for a reason. I think far too many Christian men are not motivated into biblical manhood for the right reason. I think some guys want to be godly men because it's the quote-unquote right thing to do. I think some want to pursue godly living because they, frankly, are repulsed and disgusted by the alternative. I think some are trying to earn God's favor through righteous living. And I think some have found a warm and welcoming community in the local church and they want to impress their newfound church family. But what I want is for men to be so enraptured with Jesus that they respond to who he is with a life of devotion to him. What I'm hoping for is that this vision of Jesus famous becomes so much that it's that Christ becomes important. Christ becomes glorious. Christ becomes majestic, hallowed, exalted, appreciated, holy, set apart, transcendent, or magnified first to each one of us individually, and then in us collectively, and then through us to the community that we live in. When Jesus is seen in this way, when the fame of Christ is running through our veins, we will crave a life that honors him in every way. That's what I'm hoping for. Jesus' famous men who live the entirety of their lives responding to Christ's glorious and gracious and good gospel. And that's really what this first teaching is going to be about tonight, but it's also going to be the concept of all 10 months. To me... This angle is so much better than the approach of just yelling at you to be a man or showing you a clip from Braveheart to try to get you pumped up or telling you that what you really need is to buy a motorcycle so that you can feel manly once again. I don't think that's where it's at. I want Christ to be famous in your heart. All right, one more question, though, before I read Ephesians to you and share with you from this text. Why a monthly men's study called Jesus' Famous Men at Calvary Monterey, at this church? Well, the simple answer is that this is the church I pastor. I don't know if you noticed that. So where else would I give these teachings? But a more pastoral or maybe prophetic answer is that I believe the men and women of our church need to more deeply appreciate Christ and live in response to his goodness. You know, these last few years have impacted all of us, whether we know it or not. Some of you are new to Calvary, new to this church, and a gospel-oriented grid is a new concept for you. Others of you have responded to the chaos of our time by rushing further into things other than Christ. The result then is that many of us are driven, motivated, and moved by philosophies other than the fame of Christ within. 
And I would like to help repoint us afresh to Jesus so that we could increasingly live as men responding to Christ. All right, so with that, because of this desire that I have, I want to begin our series with a passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23. Now, this passage is still very much in the introductory moments of the book of Ephesians, the introductory phrase, phase of Paul's thoughts for their church. And Paul told Ephesian believers that he was praying a specific prayer for them. And then he wrote the prayer out, and that's what we're going to study tonight. Now, in the Greek, this is one long sentence. It's an exhale of prayer. And these prayers reveal the apostolic desire. So this is what the apostle wants for this Ephesian church. So um, I hope that you would say to yourself, man, what the apostle wants is what I want. (laughs) You know, what the apostle desires is what I desire. So let's start off reading this prayer in Ephesians 1, verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the first part of the prayer that we'll think about tonight. He says in verse 17, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Let's just pause right right there. Here's the apostle. He prays for the enlightening of the eyes of our hearts. Almost sounds Eastern in origin. You know, just this different concept. We don't talk like this very often. What are you praying for? I'm praying for the enlightening of the eyes of your heart. (laughs) That's an interesting thing that Paul states. Now, what we should not think is that Paul is talking about some kind of emptying of the mind or something that occurs without the mind. Rather, what Paul wants is for the truth about God's plans for the world and us through Jesus to become something that we know, but also something that we partake of on a heart level. In the opening verses of Ephesians, Paul had another very long sentence right before this one. And in that sentence, verse 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, Paul explained the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in the life of every believer. Every blessing that he cataloged in those verses was a result of Christ's work, something Jesus had accomplished for us. And now what Paul is doing is he's praying that we would become heart-attuned to all that Christ has done and all that Christ has given Maybe a way to illustrate what Paul is praying for is to imagine a young student in school being asked to write an essay about a traditional American Thanksgiving meal. Um, That student might begin by taking a brief look at the origins of Thanksgiving. Uh, They might write about ways that the menu has adjusted or stayed the same over the years or how it's different in various regions. 
Uh, they might catalog different families, you know, traditions and customs around that meal. They might even interview people who've just eaten a Thanksgiving meal, asking them, how do you feel? Sleepy, you know, glutted, you know. They might interview them to ask them how they feel. And if they're a really gifted writer, they might actually stir up some kind of desire in you as you read their work. Like, man, I'd love to eat the meal that they are describing. But there's another way to explain the traditional American Thanksgiving meal, and it's by eating it. <laughs> Just partaking of it yourself. That's what Paul desires with this prayer. He wants to take the theoretical of what Jesus has accomplished, and he's praying that it would become so part of the fabric of the Ephesian church, and by extension, us. He wants us, in a word, to experience an epiphany, to undergo heart enlightenment, that we might know various aspects of Jesus's impact on our lives. And his, as his prayer unfolds in the next few verses, what he'll make it clear is that he wants us to comprehend Christ's calling on every one of our lives, his resources for every one of our lives, and his power toward us who believe. And like I said, we're going to consider all three. But what I want you to see is that Paul is praying for this motivation, this engine for life today, that we would taste and see that Jesus is good. Now, I'm sure all of you remember one of Jesus's most famous parables. It's called often the parable of the sower. You guys remember this parable? In it, there's a farmer who casts seed on the ground. Four types of soil received the seed. Some landed on hardened ground. Some landed on rocky ground. Some on soil that was intermixed with thorns and weeds. But a fourth landing spot was soft soil that bore fruit to an amazing degree. Jesus said 30, 60, and 100-fold it bears fruit, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but uh, that was incredible supernatural growth to them in that agrarian culture and society. And Jesus said that the fourth soil was representative of those who, he said, hear the word of God's kingdom and understand it. Now, it's an interesting parable because though the first soil is representative of those who never receive the gospel, three out of the four soils have a positive initial reception of the word of the kingdom. But it's only one of the three that receive the word that actually begin producing this radical fruit. Now, in his book, Prodigal God, Tim Keller points out that though only three types of people receive the word of the gospel, only one produces truly changed lives. Only one group of people has the endurance and the patience to face suffering. Only one group of people are able to resist an anxious, materialistic life. He wrote, the only group of people who produce changed lives are not those who have worked harder or been more obedient but those who hear the word of God and understand it. This is why Paul's prayer that I'm reading to you and explaining to you tonight is so important. If the Father 
can break through by the Spirit and give us wisdom and revelation about Christ, enlightening us by opening the eyes of our heart, this would mean that we have heard and understood the word of the gospel or the word of the kingdom. And with that revelation embedded within, we could then face the temptations and the hardships of life, enduring to deeper fruitfulness for God. And I just want you guys all to dream for a moment. What would you be if you could see the plans and resources and power of Christ for you clearly? If you believed all of his promises to the fullest degree, what would you be, what would you do? What level of security or confidence or conviction would enter your heart? What kind of love or passion or reprioritization of things in life might develop within you? This is so important that our eyes would be opened to what Christ is and has done and what his resources are towards us. In the Old Testament, there's a story about the prophet Elisha. He was doing his thing, and the Syrian army hated him because he kept prophesying against, him, against them. So they came and encamped against Elisha, just Elisha's little house, this whole army surrounding them. Elisha had a servant, and he was freaked out by this turn of events. He came to Elisha, and he said, hey, man, we're surrounded. And Elisha exhorted him, and he said, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, like Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, Elisha prayed for his servant. He said, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And God opened his eyes. And this young man began to see the spiritual dimension. All around Elisha's home, he saw the surrounding mountains full of God's army, horses and chariots of fire, he realized the truth that Elisha already knew. It was the Syrian army that was outnumbered, not Elisha. And his fear evaporated once he saw correctly. And I think it's this concept that Paul carried into this prayer in Ephesians. He'd already written that we have innumerable blessings from God in Christ, but there's often a disconnect for the believer. We don't see the reality of these blessings. We can't hear his call, nor can we see his riches and power. We often fixate on only what we can see with our physical eye, the material realm. So Paul prayed for his readers. He asked God to give them spiritual sight. He wants enlightenment, revelation. He knows we, like Elisha's servant, would only gain boldness and confidence and conviction if we could see. All right, but with that, I want to ask the question, what specific elements of the knowledge of Christ did Paul hope that God would reveal to us? Of what realities is a Jesus-famous man conscious? All right, well, there's three things in this passage. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, here's what I want, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the first thing. But Jesus' famous man, he knows Christ's calling. He has had a revelation about Christ's calling. Now, we can think of this calling in four ways. 
First of all, we could think about a time in our past when we felt the call of God and submitted ourselves to Christ and his gospel. You know, some of you, this has not yet occurred in your life. You don't yet know Jesus. You've not yet surrendered to him and you're kind of checking things out. But for a lot of you guys, there's a moment in your past, maybe even a date in your mind that you remember that you surrendered your life to Jesus. You invited him into your life. You wanted him to be the Lord of your life. You know, you might not know my story, but I grew up in a pastor's home, but it was when I was 18 years old that I felt that I truly surrendered, submitted to Jesus. I was running from him for a period of time, and I was partying with friends down in Southern California, and I found myself in the middle of the night on a beach looking up into the heavens and feeling completely empty, and it was in that moment that the gospel that I'd heard from my whole life began to truly penetrate into my heart, and I said yes to the call that God had upon me. So you can think about a time past that you experienced that call. But another way to think about this is your current calling that God longs for you, for your growth and for your sanctification. He's currently calling and transforming and maturing us into what he desires for us. But you can also think of his calling not just in a date in the past, but from eternity past. You see, the Bible says that from the foundation of the world, our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. God put a calling on us before we were even born. And then we can think of this calling not only as something current or in the past or in eternity past, but we can also think of this calling as something that happens for all of eternity in the future. His call to bring us home to be with him, to be with God. Now, all, all four of these callings, our personal past, our current sanctification, eternity past, and eternity future are part of this phrase that Paul mentions, the hope to which he has called us. And if that's our calling, why would Paul mention hope? Well, when a Christian understands this call of God, distant past, eternity past, in our own past, in our current experience, and in our future with God, when a Christian man understands that, what develops is an unshakable hope. This hope is not wishful thinking, but a confident expectation that rids a life of pessimism and fear and insecurity. Boldness and certainty that God is at work in their lives, but also in the course of human history, floods a person who has this hope and this calling. So the Jesus famous man is certain of Christ's calling on his life. He's expectant that God is working through even the chaos of our time to wrap up all his purposes. So men, this unbreakable optimism, to me, it's an antidote to the caustic hopelessness that characterizes so much of our age. This is a belief that God, according to Ephesians 1 verse 10, has a plan 
for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And I believe that God is looking for men with this hope and confidence in Christ's calling. Men under the spell of this epiphany and secure and resolved. They do not need to lash out when challenged because they know who they are and where all this is going. They're not despondent because they don't expect everything to improve until Christ's return, but they work hard to unite as many things to Jesus's lordship as they possibly can today. Because they are called, they want their bodies, their thought life, and their speech to be ruled by Christ. Because they are called, they crave for his purposes and will to become their purpose and will. Because they are called, they are willing to consider a countercultural and at times counterintuitive way of living. Because they are called, they realize even their own desires and impulses are not the best navigational instruments for life. Because they are called, they do not expect those who are not to act as if they are. But a second thing that Paul prayed for is not just that we would know Christ's calling, but that we would know Christ's resources. Look at this part of the prayer in verse 18. He said, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, here we come to Paul's second prayer for the church. That we would know the inheritance or the riches that God has given to us. Six times. Paul referred to this inheritance as riches in the book of Ephesians. Now, this wealth is not material, but spiritual. And of course, the greatest of all spiritual blessings is Christ himself. In another place, Paul referred to the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ's indwelling presence in his people is the most profound mystery and the most valuable possession. And here, what Paul prays for is the church to know these deep riches. You guys, the Christian life is oftentimes a battle of beliefs. Will we, as his men, become convinced that God's spiritual riches are superior in every way? That's what Paul's praying for. It's a wish that our minds would become convinced. But our eyes of flesh see the stuff of flesh, don't they? So we're often drawn to the physical world with its physical blessings. But we have to allow the spirit of wisdom to interact with our spirits, to rewire our convictions and beliefs. We must come to a place where we confess that God's blessings are the most significant blessings. And this is a hard thing to have occur. That's why Paul is praying for this epiphany to take place. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to teach a little kid about how money works. You know, it's kind of a trippy experience. But as you're explaining money to them, especially American money, there's always like, I always noticed there was like this one thing that always tripped up all of my kids. You know, I'd show them like paper money and it's like, yeah, the 20 is worth more than the 10 and the 10 is worth more than the five and the five is worth more than the one. And then we get out the coins 
and the quarter is better than the, the dime and the nickel and the penny and all of that. But the thing that always tripped him up was the, the dime in relationship to the nickel. That was always a tough one because it's like, well, the nickel and the dime, they're both silver looking, but the, the nickel is bigger than the dime. So how could the dime be worth more? And you kind of got to go through the, you're praying for an epiphany to take place, that the eyes would be open and that they would understand. And that's the reality, I think, or that illustrates what it's like in the Christian life. The spirit has to teach our inner man about that which is most valuable. This conviction has to enter our minds, affecting our lives. And imagine, brothers, the contentment that could flow from this conviction. Once the Spirit corrects our value system and shows us the true riches of Christ, joy and satisfaction and love become attainable. And if I called hope unbreakable optimism, I think I'd have to call this unfathomable wealth. This unfathomable wealth of Christ and his resources, I think it's an antidote to the discontentment that characterizes so much of what our age is about. You see, Jesus' famous men, they know the value of money. They work hard to subdue the earth just like God commanded. They want to be good stewards of what God has entrusted into their care yet they know their true satisfaction is found in the spiritual wealth provided by Christ. Since they've had an epiphany of the greatness of Christ and his gift, they're like that fourth soil that bears fruit. They're not tripped up by hardships in life or hindered by the cares of this world because they found a greater treasure in Christ. Too many men are running around discontented with their situation their spouse, their bodies, their finances, their careers, or a million other things. The Jesus famous man, though, is content, and he pursues Christ's best for all these elements because he's responding to the lordship of Jesus. But he knows the greatest possessions and treasures are found in that spiritual dimension. And he knows that dimension will impact the physical one in countless ways. So he orders and designs his life as a constant pursuit of the spiritual resources at Christ's disposal. All right, but the third thing that Paul prayed for, and I told you there were three. The last one is that he wanted them to know Christ's power. Look at verse 19 and 20. He prayed that they would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's really his main third and final request, that they would know the profound power of God in their lives, his power toward those who believe. And he used a lot of words to try to emphasize uh, the thrust of God's power. He called it immeasurable. He said it was the greatness of God's power, that it was towards us. This is like extravagant, superabundant power from God working for and on his people. And as Paul prayed for this revelation, for us to understand the power of God toward us, it almost feels like Paul himself had an epiphany or a revelation. 
because he expounded on this third one. He talked about the hope of calling, but he didn't expound on that very much. The riches in Christ, but he didn't expound on that very much. But the power, he expounded on that a lot. Look at verse 20 to 23. He said, the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now this is wild because what Paul is doing is he's saying the power of God that we see demonstrated in Jesus is a power that is pointed towards us as his men today. Consider how the power of God, as Paul said, raised Christ from the dead. It almost sounds blasphemous to say that the same power that raised Christ is available for God's men today. But this is precisely what Paul writes. It's an appropriate statement for it's the exact power that God has already wrought in the life of every single one of us who are Christians tonight. In Romans, Paul said that we were buried therefore with Jesus by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So every single believer has already had the resurrection power of God released upon them. But also, he says that the power of God placed Christ above all. That's Paul's way of telling us that Jesus' rule over everything, his authority and power and dominion above every name has already occurred. In Paul's day, everyone knew that he was alluding to cosmic powers, many of them demonic and evil. And Paul is saying that Christ is above all of that, all angels, all demons, even Satan, who according to Ephesians 2 verse 2, is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Jesus is above all of that. According to Colossians 2 15, he's disarmed rulers and authorities. But he also says that the power of God made Christ the head of all things, not just above all, but the head of all things, including the church. Jesus is the head of this body called the church. Everything is under his feet, especially God's people. As we talked about this morning, we're called to follow and submit and represent him here on earth. You guys, this immeasurable power is an antidote to the lethargy that characterizes much of our age. Rather than trudge along in defeatism, without zeal, with no vision, the Jesus famous man longs to tap into Christ's power for his life. Right now, today, he knows the power of God is available for salvation. Because Romans 1, 16 and 17 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He knows the power of God can help him obey today because Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says that it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He knows the power of God strengthens him for and through the trials of life 
Because he said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And he knows the power of God helps us make disciples of all nations because Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. What might we become if we believed in this great power of God working towards us? Well, what we would become is a church that is closer to the church in the book of Acts that had the nuclear power of God at their disposal. We'd operate unencumbered by paralyzing fears and man-made structures. We would fly, we would be unrestrained, we would hold a conviction that all the powers of the age cannot stop the deep work of God in transforming us. We would see nothing as impossible for God. Now, as I'm explaining these definitions, this unbreakable optimism, this certainty of calling and expectation, this hope and belief in the immeasurable power of God, I don't want you to reject these definitions if you have not yet experienced these realities. You see, this is what God is bringing us into. This prayer that Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, I think it was a prayer that he was praying for his own life as well. It's something that he was increasingly having an epiphany and an understanding and a knowledge about. It wasn't a one and done experience, but a continual process in his life. And we have to come to the place where we say, this is what God could do. God could connect me to this reality. And when he does, ever increasingly, we will have found the proper motivation for a Christ-honoring life. The engine room of our heart will have been properly started, and the downstream elements that we'll talk about in the coming months of biblical manhood can be attained. But let me wrap this up with one last question. Can this epiphany that Paul prayed for, that he desired, and that I'm trying to pitch tonight, can this epiphany that he wanted, can it somehow be cultivated in our lives? You know, because some of you might be sitting there tonight going like, okay, cool, Paul's praying for this epiphany. Nate's rooting for this revelation. It's the opening of the eyes of our hearts. I thought maybe I'd get like an assignment tonight. I thought there'd be like something that I could do, but I'm nervous that I'm gonna leave here tonight and there's like nothing I'm supposed to do except just hope and pray that an epiphany occurs and that my eyes are open to see the hope of his calling and the power of Christ towards me and the great resources at my disposal because of Jesus. I guess I'm just waiting for that moment to occur in my life. Is there anything that we can do to nurture this epiphany? Well, let me offer a few suggestions. The first thing that I would say is don't dismiss Paul's strategy of prayer. In the quiet or in not so quiet prayer before God, ask for a 
paradigm-altering vision of Jesus. Ask him to open your eyes and to give you this revelation. Pray. But another thing I would say, secondly, is do what you can to mute alternative voices. You see, I'm sure that all of you have had the experience of, you know, trying to be attuned to the Lord, but allowing distraction into your life. I don't know if you guys have had the experience of like, I'm sure you've all had the experience of trying to read something online, but like you don't have one of those ad blockers installed or like they're not working on that particular website or whatever. And it's just like, for me, it's like torture reading that way. Like I just can't handle it. It's like things flashing and blinking and click here and all of that. And it's just like, got to read the article, you know, kind of experience. And in a sense, it's the distractions that are challenging the message that, that's trying to be communicated by that website or page. So in your life, consider how many distractions that might be in your life are keeping you from considering the magnificence of Christ. A third thing I would say is that you've got to trust that the revelation comes when God allows it to come. The biblical evidence and personal experience, my own life, what I've experienced and seen in others, seem to indicate that God often gives this epiphany when he wants, but quite often in times of distress in our lives. So let it come when it needs to come. I know for me, this actually began to unfold in my life when I was 18 years old, and I was actually in a class where we were studying the book of Ephesians. And the pastor who had been teaching this class kept on talking about the wealth that's in Christ, the riches in Christ. He kept talking about this epiphany. And I began tuning him out. I'm like, man, I, I'm, I'm ready to like move on to something more advanced. You know, I thought I was a real seasoned Christian at 18 years of age. And this moment came where he was just riffing on Ephesians 1 verse 3. The idea that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he was just talking about that, explaining that reality, that as a Christian, I have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's nothing I can do to attain more of the position that I've been given in Christ. And I don't know what it was about that day. There was nothing exciting about it. It wasn't a real dynamic kind of message. He wasn't that kind of speaker or anything like that. But something about it, it was God's moment of breaking into my heart and helping me see that there was this ocean that I had not previously been privy to. And I just began in that moment of my life realizing, okay, I don't know how long I'm gonna live. It might be 80 years, but even if I got to live one of those pre-Noahic crazy lifespans of 900 years plus, I would never come to terms on this side of eternity with all that Christ has done for me. 
And so I'm gonna spend the rest of my life trying to tap into this glorious grace that I've been given. You gotta trust that that revelation will come when God allows it to come. And fourth, I would say this, believe that the revelation comes in stages. I didn't get it all in that moment. It's been sequential over time. What you've grown to appreciate of Christ today is merely the start. Continue to hope for an increased understanding of his calling, his resources, his power through every season and stage of your journey with Christ. And fifth, determine to eradicate works-based righteousness and standing before God from your life. You see, the grace of God is the best thing to train you to become a godly man that is zealous for good works. But a legalistic framework always lurks in the shadow of our hearts. Inevitably, we can think that we can earn more of God's calling or resources or power through our impressive works, and we cannot. And then lastly, I would say this. Believe what Jesus said when he said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If that's true, then when you put the treasure of your time and energy and finances into the things of Christ, you know what will happen? Soon, your heart will follow. And you'll begin to be opened up to this prayer that Paul is praying for the Ephesians and is praying for us. So I hope and pray that I've communicated to you guys clearly tonight the desire of the apostle, the heart of God, that we would be men who have been electrified by what Jesus has done for us. So let me pray for you tonight. Thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for these men. I pray, Lord, and ask that we really truly, more and more, ever increasingly, would become these Jesus-famous men that we have talked about tonight, who are responding to the revelation of this glorious hope, this incredible wealth in Christ, and the great power that is at our disposal. Bless us, Lord, we pray. We want to be men who honor you with our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes more and more and more to the greatness of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.